I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share their real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best lives. I am Jenny Taylor. And I'm Michelle Scharf. I am coming out of my skin. I know. We almost just want to clap today. We're so excited about our guest. This is ridiculous. It's like fandom over here. It totally here. is fandom. It's KSL fandom. It's Utah Valley, uh, Utah area fandom. I know, right? This is so crazy. So I met our next guest, Amanda Dixon, when I was working on the uh, Senator Hatch campaign. And she just... The energy that bubbles around her is just electric. You can probably hear it through your phone as you're listening to this podcast. Because when she walked in the room a few minutes ago, it was like, Amanda's here! I know. I just love your energy. Your energy is amazing. And contagious. It is contagious. And the exciting thing is, we actually have a guest in the studio with us again. (laughs) Which is completely unusual. Which is completely unusual because KSL has some protocols that we can't have guests. But you work here. Right. And and we get to all be together in the studio. And it is amazing. I'm so excited to hear the sides that maybe we don't hear about you because, of course, you're not promoting yourself on the radio. Right. People don't want to hear about me. (laughs) Well, today we do, though. Today today, we do. I know. I joke. I said I've I've grown up listening to Amanda since I was a young girl because my mom has long been a KSL News Radio listener every morning in our home. So I've known your voice as long as I've known my mother's almost. But we want to get to know you. Amanda, who are you aside from this energetic radio personality? Oh, my goodness. Where should I start? Well, I grew up in Pennsylvania. Okay. A little town in Pennsylvania called Bloomsburg. I have an older brother and an older sister, so I was the baby in the family. Um, And... I left home rather early. I know we'll talk more about this later. But I left home rather early because I was an athlete. And so my parents thought I was just I was I was a swimmer. They used to drive me hours to Wooksbury Scranton. Now you know Scranton now because of the office. Sure. Yeah. That was the closest place that there was a good swimming team. And How so, far oh, away was that? That's about uh, an hour drive there and an hour drive back. Oh my for goodness. For every practice. And for every practice. My oh, mom like would do it. going from Davis County to Utah County. Yeah, right. <laughs> and my mom would do it. And in the summertime, she'd do it twice a day. Wow. It was just no crazy. Way. And I think now That's that four I, hours on the road. It's crazy. It, she just devoted her. In fact, it's funny because she crochets Afghans. She crocheted uh, Afghans. Yeah. I crochet Afghans now. Uh-huh. And I'll take my 16-year-old son to basketball practice and I'll sit there crochet Afghans, oh, how beautiful. And I'm channeling my mother because I can I can just see her up in the stands while I'm, you know, swimming, swimming. And I'm looking at every breath I take. I see her up there in the stands. And she's just busily and she's working. she's just making Afghans. And so I can feel her spirit with me oh, now. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. So okay, amazing. So two, you got a brother and a sister. Yes, brother and you sister. You grew up a swimmer. Right. Pennsylvania. Now you're in Utah. Bridge the gap for us from okay. childhood to today. Oh, wow. So the story of how I came to Utah is sort of funny. <laughs> <laughs> I will give you the Cliff Notes version. So my brother and I were not the best kids. 
(laughs) But we 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 got into some trouble when we were younger, and my 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 mother thought we should go to BYU. That if we that would turn you around because we would behave better because. LDS kids behave really like well. Every LDS parent. Thinks, yes, I will just save my child by sending sending them. To them if if we could get into to a Mormon college, <sighs> we would behave better. Were now, you raised LDS? No. Oh, so oh, but an even more interesting dynamic. Yeah. Yes. So we, I'm sure, we would not get in if we applied today. But back then, it was 1981. We applied and we were accepted to a BYU. And then we were mortified when we found out we couldn't live in the same apartment oh, together. right. Because even, housing is segregated by right. gender. Sure. So um, I, I remember sleeping on his couch in his apartment and getting in big trouble for walking oh. out of his apartment, oh. which had, you know, five other boys in it. But I wanted to be with my brother. Oh. <laughs> Not okay. And so we made it one year at BYU. Okay. And, and I understand when they talked to us and said, you guys don't want to be here. And there's a long waiting list of people who do want sure. to be here. So... We're going to invite you to go somewhere else. <laughs> so did you go back home or where no, did you go next? we transferred to the University of Utah. Oh, of course. <laughs> where is, which is where I graduated from. Okay. And I look back at that experience now and I was just too immature to respect where I was. I, th- I mean, I think Br- Brigham Young is a fantastic university. and Obviously, I do. I do a lot of things with them now. And the University of Utah, my brother didn't finish there. He went to Palmer Chiropractic College, which you oh. did not need a degree to to go to back yeah. then. Of course, you do now. Yeah. But um, you didn't then. So he got his he science. Straight into chiropractic. Right. And I graduated with an English degree okay. at the U. And then not knowing what to do, went to law school. <laughs> When, when in doubt, there you when go. in doubt, go to law school. And I made it a year and a half before I dropped out, oh. and I became a dropout, <laughs> which is a horrible thing to be—a law school dropout. And that's when, when I went into radio. Oh my goodness! <laughs> so, what was your undergrad in? Was it communications? Uh, no, it was English. Oh, that's what you had just said. Okay, yeah. so clearly you, you like the language and things. But what took you to the radio? I'm, I was dating a guy. It's always a guy's fault. I was. Guy's t- fault. <laughs> I was, dating, I was dating this wonderful man um, named Roger Brown, I, and he had been in radio many, many years, worked at Call Radio, and at the time, he had an advertising agency, and he said, you have this magnificent voice. You could earn a living uh, with that voice, and I thought I had no idea what he was talking about, and so he introduced me to a man named Starley Bush, who at the time owned K-Talk radio and 99.5 which back then uh-huh. was the breeze right and then became <laughs> oh. love 99.5 and that was my first disc jockey job was that love 99.5 i love, I love that okay love so it. now fast forward a few years now you're in the talk radio side you're married you have children yeah. tell us about that side of you so um here you i did am. not marry the other guy obviously yeah did not marry okay. the other guy but did marry scott seeger here at ksl i was married one time before my husband uh, now okay, wait a sec how many of us listening to ksl our entire lives did not know that i did S- not know that scott seeger was my first husband wonderful man did and, not know that amanda and he and i uh well, you know, to the extent that that a marriage can never end well, and certainly it was it was painful at the time, and I know he would agree with that. But we are friends now. Oh, that's good. Um, he is a wonderful man who I just think the world of, and so we were married almost ten years, and then we parted ways. We didn't have any children together. Um, and then I remarried a couple of years later to a man who I also knew from KSL. I know, I know. Well, I didn't go to I didn't go to any 
I didn't do anything outside of work. You're such a rule breaker. I am. Like a rule that like you. I think there is now. (laughs) (laughs) A couple couple husbands. It's the Amanda rule. rule. There will be no date. So um, my husband, who I've been married to for 20 years, is Aaron Wilhelm, and I have uh, two children by him, and then we have three children that he had from his first marriage. So I I called them my bigs, my bigs and my littles, my littles who are not little anymore. They are quite large themselves. I remember when you first had your littles, again, from listening to the radio, I remember when you were, were going to be an expectant mother and everything. So anyway, flashbacks. Yeah. So, all right. So that's kind of a fun side of Amanda that I know I didn't know all of that. Michelle, did yeah, you know all I, of that? I did not know all of that. We're still trying to catch up from everything she just said. I'm a big fangirl of her, though. Your voice, first of all, your voice is just so recognizable. I mean, that guy was right to have told you, like, yeah. You've got this distinct voice. I've heard that myself. You do. And I agree. <laughs> well, wait a second here, people. You're going to be kicking me off the podcast soon. And it's going to no, be the no, total no, no, taking no, over. No, no. You, you do, too. <laughs> no way. We all do. I, I would say we all do. But I love the energy and the love in your voice. I just hear, I know. Your voice to me is just comfort because it's like butter. It's like, oh, it's Amanda. But then it's also, oh, it's Amanda. <laughs> it's also, but it's like that voice that you've just heard for, forever. So when you first came into the studio this morning, I told you this. It's like you to me are the voice of Utah in media because I moved here in 1992 so I've always heard you mm-hmm. on KSL. We've only ever like, known I've you only in the ever heard you. <laughs> yeah. And so and and you've kind of you've gone away at different times or maybe that Once. was babies. Yeah. Or, oh yes, or, babies. Yeah. yeah. Once to be a lawyer. Once okay. to be a lawyer. I remember twice that. Twice for babies. Okay. So I do you remember there was like a couple little gaps of time where you were kind of missing it in that but yeah, it's just kind of interesting. And of oh, course, so super fast. Then that means you did go back to law school because you were a dropout. Yes, she I was a dropout. A lawyer. Yeah. I, I went back while I was still working here. Okay. So I, I went back and finished law school at the same time that I was doing the morning show, which was insane. And that's what I remember from when I was younger. And I remember you being all excited to finish law school and kind of graduate from working at the radio station. Yeah. And then you came back to the radio station and yeah. we were so glad. I, not as glad as I was. Oh. <laughs> You're like, that was a, a nice experience, but it's not what um, I want to do with my life. I have so much respect for lawyers. That is the hardest work yeah. I've ever done. It takes enormously thick skin. Mm. And I love studying the law. I still like reading cases. Sure. What was the law that you were practicing? What did you do for a bit? The firm that I worked for had two sort of areas of, of focus, although now I think it's much bigger and they do all, absolutely everything. But at the time, there was a water law side, which oh. I didn't even know what that was. Yeah. Because and I that's come, serious law. That's serious it, that, law. That is serious mm-hmm. law. And I you, learned a lot about that working on congressional campaigns. I bet you, you did. You learn a lot about water. Yeah. And water rights and water waste. Right. <laughs> and then the other side of the firm did, well, they did a little bit of everything. A lot of federal criminal criminal defense. Oh, wow. So we did bank fraud, securities fraud, So this fraud, isn't just fraud. like fill out some legal document kind you, of stuff. This is heavy work. Yes. Okay. It well, was, we're glad you came back to radio you. and we're glad yeah. to get to know a little about know. you that so we fun. didn't know. And we're going to take a quick break and come back and then we're going to hear a story like you alluded to, how you moved out so young in this sports life of yours and how that affected you as a young woman and how it shaped your life today. We'll be right back. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish 
More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Right, Amanda, tell us about this stardom in your athletic career. You're a swimmer. What age did you start? How did that lead to you moving out? Where did you go? Walk us through that. Okay. I started swimming, I guess, when I was about eight or nine, I think. Like a lot of kids start in some sort of sport then or younger than that for gymnasts and, and other athletes. And I just took to it. I just took to it and got faster and faster. And I started to grow, too. I got tall quite young. And by the time I was 10, I was I was just fast. And I can remember going to swim meets in Philadelphia and other places. And, and my mom would be watching me from the stands. And she would tell me afterwards that the other mothers in the stands would say things like, that girl is not 10. <laughs> <laughs> and so. As if you were like uh, yeah. swimming in a lower grade. Yes. To, to like right. get the- <laughs> She's trying to bust into the under 10. Um, whatever. And so. As I love it. It started going on. It's like um, dance moms at swim moms. Yes, exactly. Oh, it's for sure. <laughs> exactly. So my parents found out about this school in Fort Lauderdale, Florida called mm-hmm. Pinecrest Preparatory Academy. And Pinecrest had a swimming coach at the time who was the women's Olympic coach. Oh, wow. Oh. He was uh, an amazing man. And they found out about, you know, what it took to get a scholarship to the school. And and they took in kids from all over the country and from out of the country. We had some swimmers from Canada and other places. And so I was gung-ho to do it without even understanding what it meant to do it. How old were you? Twelve. Oh I went gosh. there in seventh Seventh grade. So you, yeah. not your family, moved to Florida. Just you me. You moved out as a 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. What was that like? It scared me in ways that I feel still in my body when I tell you wow. the story. They drove me down. My parents drove me to Fort Lauderdale in their <laughs> station wagon. <laughs> and um, I remember pulling up to the dorm, and the dorm had 60 girls in it. You know, it was grades 7 through 12, so the 7th graders were the youngest. And I remember moving my stuff in and seeing all these girls who looked – now, there were a lot of girls in the dorm, too, who were from South America from very wealthy families Mm -hmm. because Pinecrest also had a lot of very wealthy students from South Florida and also from South American countries who wanted their kids to get an American education. And so there were kids from wealthy, wealthy families who were not swimmers. And then there were swimmers. So we were sort of – there were two cliques sort of there, Mm -hmm. the kids from money and the kids who were athletes. So I moved in and saw everyone and watched my parents drive away. And you were 12. And I was 12. And I thought, dear God in heaven, how am I going to get through this? Yeah. Are you alone in your dorm or are you sure? I had a roommate. Okay. I had several roommates. The first roommate I had didn't speak any English. Her name was Anna Laura Alarcon and she was from Columbia. And she was terrified even more than I was. Can you imagine? 
Um, and so she eventually moved in with another girl who spoke good English and Spanish. Oh, good. To and helped be her bridge. better. Right. Yeah. And then I got another roommate named Julie. <laughs> Still can picture. She was a teeny little thing, but she was a she was a bear inside. And I can remember, you know, we get up at we'd had workout before and after school. So we'd get up at five thirty for our first workout. We'd work out in the morning, and then we'd work out after school. And it was just relentless. It was exhaustion. The exhaustion actually helped because when you're exhausted, it's hard to be sad. Right. Yeah. Right. Which is a disease that I've had my whole life. Interesting. I work myself into exhaustion to keep depression away. Oh. It took 40 years for me to realize what I was doing, that that well, was you, you were a taught crutch. that young. Mm-hmm. It's a yeah. crutch to push yourself to exhaustion so you don't have to feel. Right. That I learned in seventh grade. Wow. So what was the conversation? At what point or did you ever speak with your parents and say, hey, I'm nervous, I'm anxious here? Or was it just kind of a given you were a good swimmer, they had gone to all this trouble to get you into this swimming academy, and you were just going to make it work? We never discussed it until I started getting into trouble years mm-hmm. later. You know, I became sort of a problem kid, <laughs> having no parental guidance of any kind from that age on. And what happened was two years later, I developed a thyroid condition. My thyroid gland, it was hyperthyroidism. So the gland just grew and grew. And they thought I had a goiter. And then they realized that's not a goiter. That's her actual gland, this bump on my neck. So when they took the thyroid gland out, I gained 60 pounds like that. Oh, my goodness. And got very slow in the pool. That sure. was, oh, yeah. That was the end of my swimming career. And how old were you there? Then I was still, 14. Still quite young. Yeah. And so that... When that happened, that was sort of the beginning of my downward spiral into getting into trouble and going astray. And, and then I didn't have a trust in my parents or any authority figures. And I didn't have the crutch of the swimming of the busyness. and the busyness. And that's when things got dicey. Did you stay at the academy when you were no longer swimming or did you move back home? Um, No. My parents sent me to a different school. They sent me to a Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire where my brother was going to school. I was going to ask if they sent your brother and sister to a school as well. Was that kind of a family tradition? I mean, in America, we don't send our children away to school as much. But other cultures or other generations, that's kind of a normal thing. Yeah. My sister, my older sister, never got sent away uh, when she was younger. My brother did not get sent away as young as I did, but he got sent away that year. So his ninth grade year, I went with him to Exeter. My father had gone to Exeter. So mm-hmm. we, his parents sent him to Exeter. So we were what they call legacy at Exeter. And Exeter, and some of your listeners might know, is a, a, this is one of the oldest prep schools in the country. It's, it's the prep to Harvard. There's a, Exeter and Andover. There's a prep to Harvard and there's a prep to Yale. It's a very old, ivy-colored, intimidating, wonderful school. Yeah. And I was thoroughly intimidated by it because I didn't have the crutch of right. the athleticism to help me anymore. And the loneliness kicked in in a, in a thorough way while I was there. It's really interesting, though, because I'm thinking about this now in today's world. If I had sent a child that was in my home today, mm-hmm. we have Skype and Zoom and cell phones and 
But we didn't even have cell phones back no. then. No. I would talk to my parents once a week on a payphone at the end of the corridor. I was just going to ask you that. Like, yeah. What was the connection with family and how did you maintain that? It was once a week. There was a payphone at the end of the corridor and you had to share it with, you know, there were 60 girls on your, well, no, 30 girls on your floor. 60 girls total in the dorm. And, you know, if you if you were on longer than 15 minutes, you, you heard about it because they're all in line. Right. Everybody wants to get on the phone. Right. Yeah. And it was hard to cry not... in front of 30 girls right. have, and try to have a private conversation. It was impossible. And you've got 15 minutes. And you've got 15 minutes. So it's hard to get through the niceties. Yeah. And then be able to talk from your soul. Right. Yes. And you're 12. So you don't even know how to do that. <laughs> so you learned you learned to, you learned that you were alone in the world very young. What about like holidays or summer break or anything? Did you travel back and forth and see your family? Most of the time, but not all the time. I remember spending a Thanksgiving alone at Exeter. But there there were a lot of kids who were there from foreign countries. And so I wasn't the only one. My hat was off to Exeter at the time because they did Thanksgiving family style in the dining rooms. They would bring out... Not that we didn't carve the turkey, but they would bring out a platter of turkey and a pl- and then afterwards they'd bring out a pie for the table. And so we'd be there with kids who were stuck there from all over the country, all over the world, and share that moment with those other children. It, that was beautiful. Yeah, but also difficult. I mean, you're so yes. young mm-hmm. at this age. You've been disconnected from your family for a couple years now. Mm-hmm. You're here. You're having this. Thanksgiving by yourself. I mean, the feeling of abandonment, the the difficulties with attachment and relationships moving forward, that's got to be difficult. Yes. And you can't, abandonment is is the word because I I started to blame my parents, but I shouldn't have. Tell me more about that because I might look at it and say, oh, but your parents sent you away. Yes. Which I can see where your mind would go there. But they did it for my benefit. So so walk me through your thought process on that and where you've come. And at what point in your life did you come to realize that? There are times when, because of the problems that I developed as a result of that, the mistakes that I made in my youth <laughs> and some of the, the difficulties that I had with that, I looked at it, and especially after I had my own children, and I thought, I could never. Let those kids, I look at my 14 and 16 year old boys. I could never allow them to be that far away from me. Their frontal lobes are not developed. I I am their frontal lobe. They're they're not leaving this house. Well, I feel that way. So I didn't ever, I was a very active Mormon for many, many years. But when my first child became of age to go on a mission, I immediately started to have second thoughts on all of this idea of what I was doing with them in my life because I was like, I can't send my child away for two years, no, or a year and a half, whatever. I'm like, no. Yeah. They're too young. And that's how I I felt. I had that how could they in my mind. But then as I got older, I looked at how strong and independent I became. When I went to college, it was a walk in the park for me. And I saw how the other students my age were struggling. But I I had been away from home for six years by that time. And I was completely comfortable with that. I've always been comfortable traveling anywhere alone because of that early experience. And even getting into radio was a a very comfortable, relatively, experience for me because talking with the empathy that I think I feel naturally for Mm -hmm. anyone who is suffering comes quickly because I see the lonely person in another human being 
immediately. Right, because you can identify it. Mm-hmm. You can you you've experienced it yourself. It's so readily to be seen in yes. somebody else. And they they did that for me because they knew I came from a little teeny town and the only way to give me experiences was to give me this. It, take it advantage must, of that. Imagine how much it hurt them. To, to drop me off and well, drive and away. Well, and clearly she was a passionate mother. I mean, yes. she was driving you four hours right. a day. Right. She was up in the stands the whole time. She was doing her crocheting. She was always there. And then to be able to drop me drop, off and drive, uh, drive away. away. Imagine how much that hurt her. She had to be dying inside. And I, I mean, I there's never no way. appreciated that. Right. As much as I should have while she was alive. Oh. Yeah. And I'm sorry about that. Oh. You know, I didn't. It's, I, you don't I have to be sorry here. I didn't thank her because I didn't appreciate it until I became a mother. And she passed when my kids were very young. So I didn't get to, to tell her, I know that must have hurt you, Mom, and I'm sorry. But you, what you gave me was a beautiful gift because it made me strong. Right. It's so easy for us as children to blame our parents and think of some malintent, especially when we feel hurt about it. And the reality is, is that our parents are always, most parents are always operating out of love. They're doing their best at the time, the best that they know at the so, time. That's Amanda, all they I'm have. I'm curious. So you went from this feeling of abandonment and lonely, getting in trouble, getting sent to a college where, okay, now you're not in that college. You end up at the U. Is there a turning point in your young adulthood where you began to come out of some of those those negative feelings that were leading to the trouble behavior or, or did you just kind of slowly grow up out of that? Like Because a lot of people who have hard times in their youth and start making poor decisions end up continually making poor decisions and, and by your age we wouldn't expect you to be flourishing the way you are. Not everyone yeah. looks at their trials and says, and this has made me strong you know, a lot of times it's the, the blame and the abandonment leads to horrible, awful statistics. So yeah. where and how did you, was that just innate in you to rise above that feeling of abandonment and, and loneliness? Or was there something in college, a person you met, where did you come up out of that to not just be, you know, a total basket case the rest of your life? You know, I I, I did make mistakes in various forms through, <laughs> throughout my life. <laughs> Throughout my life, I think that the real awakening, the real resilience for me of a full nature came after I became a mother. Interesting. But that was how many years after you were 12? Oh, my gosh. You know, almost 30. I mean, I had my first child at 40. Yeah, that was a while. So I felt the woundedness in a way that made me do stupid things, not daily, not even monthly or even yearly, but still there were wounded qualities to some of my decision-making, some of my hurt feelings that were coming up in ways that they shouldn't. There were wounded qualities up until I think something changed on a spiritual level when I became a mom. Wow. I totally relate. I think I've operated off of a lot of those hurt traumas as a woman and as a mother even. But having children starts to heal those wounds. You start to realize the responsibility you have for this 
small child and you start to dream big dreams for them and you start to want to give them all the things and fill the hurts that you had within this child, right? And it starts a healing process of its own doing, I think. Yeah. I think it's a very normal, natural thing. You know, my daughter, I have a daughter who has a, a child out of wedlock and um, she is very compassionate towards me now for my parenting, right? I was not a perfect parent. And who is right. And there actually is no perfect parent. Right. And it's a big myth. But as a child, we believe that our parents have all the answers. I have another daughter. When she was 17, she asked me some spiritual questions she, and she wanted an answer. And I said, I have to tell you, I don't really know. This is what I believe. But one day you're going to have to figure out what you believe. And she goes, what? What? You don't know all the answers? I thought you had this all figured out. And she was so angry at me. And she's still kind of angry at me today. But (laughs) one day she'll get over it. I'm waiting for her to have a few kids of her own. (laughs) But, you know, it's true, right? We want to love these children and we want to fill the places. But we're filling the places that we missed out on. And it's not until they're much older that we realize, oh, They have their own places. And while we were busy trying to fill our own missed opportunities, we were creating other missed opportunities in them. Right. That's that's the that's the gig. That's the gig. And you know what's interesting to me to hear you say those feelings of abandonment or that wounded you made decisions and thoughts out of that wounded state for a long time. I remember very distinctly my father died when I was 10. I remember I mean, decades later, it was the same year my husband died, but it was about a month and a half before. I remember having kind of a spiritual awakening about my father's death. And maybe I've shared this before. I can't remember where in that moment, and he died by suicide, which you can talk about abandonment or guilt or what could we have done or why didn't I or maybe I was a bad daughter. I mean, all these irrational thoughts a child would have that I carried with me as an adult and how much I'd always felt wounded or ripped off, like I never had my dad or what. But I remember that September as the anniversary of his death came around in a way that was very raw and almost hard for me to admit, I am who I am as a 40-year-old because of what happened when I was 10. And not that I would say, please let me do that again or wish it on someone else because it will make them strong and resilient. But I looked back, my own independence, my drive in school, the choices I had made, so many I could stem back to how I felt as a 10-year-old when my father took his own life. And I remember having this, I mean, for me, it was a very spiritual moment realizing, just like you said about your parents, my dad thought he was doing what was best for us. In his very erroneous, yes. mentally ill viewpoint, yes. There's no question he, he thought did. we were mm-hmm. better off without, without him. him. He thought the there life isn't. insurance money was worth more than his broken life. Right. And I look at that and think, from his perspective, he was trying to give me anything he could, grasping at straws, that I had felt wounded by, I love that word, wounded by for decades, and then realizing how it had shaped my very everything I am, everything I have that's of value to me in my life on an important deep level comes because my dad killed himself when I was 10. Mm-hmm. And I hate that, but I'd be remiss if I didn't recognize that. That's beautiful. Yeah. So to hear you say that about your parents, that you could say as much as it hurt and destroyed you and, and really led to a lot of erroneous decisions and struggles in your life. But if I pause long enough to be honest – 
I know they thought they were doing what was better yes. for me. Now, whether they were right or wrong is kind of irrelevant. It's right? irrelevant because it was the I intention. am who I am. And let me because just because of that. Yeah, let me just throw this out. Not that this is, <laughs> but I love that you brought that up, Jenny, because you've said this many times. And I'm going to to just bring some awareness. It could be true or not, but that awareness that September and then you lose your husband in November. I have heard you say several times on the show to me personally in our own conversations that you can see the blessings in the loss of Brent, which yeah. is a very hard thing to acknowledge and admit that there are some good things, not great things. You'd rather have right. your husband, of course, but that it's resiliency to be able to see the good inside that bad, horrible thing that happened. Yes. And to choose to see it and, and to ha- let yourself see it. Because yeah. I think, and I think sometimes in our culture, particularly where we tend to be a, a faithful Christian people by mm-hmm. and large in this right. community, and we'll say, well, God must have wanted this to happen or God knew this was good for me. I don't think that's how it works as much as God will help us find good. Out right. of, that's what I say. Not every bad thing happens for a reason. But we can find reason in every bad thing that happens. So, Amanda, we're going to take a break for a second because the wisdom from that one sentence you said is just sparking so many thoughts and feelings for all of us. When we come back, we want to learn what you've learned. And now looking back all those years later, you're a mother. You've got these experiences, your marriage and different things. Teach us a little bit about what this relentless resilience looks like in your life. Amanda, teach us. I know you've learned a lot. You've reflected a lot. You've been up and down in the decades since you were a 12-year-old sent to swimming school. What does this resilience look like to you and what some of these journey takeaways you'd share with our listeners? Can I just start with what you both said before the break, which I think is, is one of the most important things, and that is to see the blessings. I think that I spent a good portion of my life looking at the pain. I loved wallowing. I was a good wallower. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I didn't want anybody to take my wallowing away from me. I loved my story. Mm -hmm. I was addicted to my story. I loved telling people how tough I was and how hard my life had been and what I had been put through. And I would tell anybody who'd listen about my story. And then at some point, I realized it's just a story. It's a story I've been telling. I could tell you a different story. I could tell you a different story. Would you like to hear a different story? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, the different story that I could tell would be about what a beautiful farm I lived on for a while when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. We didn't farm the farm, but we lived on the farm. The farmer came and farmed the fields, but we lived in the farmhouse. Okay. And it was beautiful. My dad was a small town lawyer and people would pay him sometimes in corn. I'm not kidding. Mm, He was such a sweet man. He charged less as a 35-year veteran lawyer than I did in my first year as a rookie lawyer here in Salt Lake because of the size of the town and just the kind of man he was. I could tell a different story about my childhood that wouldn't even include that negative story, but the negative story was the wallowing that I was addicted to telling. Wow. And I lived in that story for so long. 
until I started focusing more on what you two are talking about, about seeing the blessings of the woman that it turned me into, a woman who is worthy of the love of my husband. And this man is the most incredible man. I wish both of you could meet him because he is the most extraordinary human being. He is the most loving and steady and kind and generous, supportive husband and father to all of his children. And I just, I love my life with him. And I do not think I would be, I I would not have caught his eye. I would not have been worthy of him were it not for these things that I went through and my ability to now see the blessings. Isn't that interesting for you to say, I loved the wallowing. I was addicted Mm -hmm. to the wallowing. I was comfortable Oh in yeah, the wallowing. Comfortable in the wallowing. So, what clicked you out of that wallowing again? Would that have been? I got bored. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's her ADHD mind. I got it bored with in. the wallowing. Do you know? Like, I, I this used is to just enough. I used to drink. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I wasn't a drunk, but I drank wine probably most every day, and that was one of my numbing agents. Sure. And I got bored with that too. Mm. I got bored with being numb. I got bored with telling myself that story. I got bored of hiding from the way I felt and bored from hiding from other people. I got just bored and I wanted to be in my life. Yeah. You want it to be present and engaged. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the reasons I love my kids so much. And I loved, even if I had not been able to have kids of my own, why I love my husband's kids from his first marriage, I love them so much, is because they bring me into the moment. There is no thinking about the past or dreaming about the future when you are in the presence of children, because they bring you right there. Right. Right. (laughs) And that is what I needed. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Children are great medicine. I they are. They are your gurus. Yeah, they are. You just can't be wallowing, especially my oldest daughter, my 32-year-old daughter has Down syndrome. And you cannot be checking out or she'll wander away. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, and she taught me very early. Well, she taught me a lot of things. She taught me unconditional love because, of course, when my husband and I were, were first dating, you know, it's hard because my husband's divorce was, was painful for him and his ex-wife. And so the other two kids were sort of – it was their job to hate me and they were doing their job. Sure. But Laurel, she didn't understand resentment. You know, Guile wasn't – she wasn't capable of that. Mm-hmm. So she'd walk up to me and just, there you are, <laughs> with her arms wide open. It's so good to see you. And we were – Instantly in love with each other. And she taught me how to love without resentment. Mm -hmm. And she kept our family together during the tough. We'd sit around the table and there'd be dead silence. (laughs) No one is speaking to anyone. And Laurel would say, so, how's it going? (laughs) Just completely unaware of the tension. No beating around the bush. And we'd all just sort of look at each other like, well, I guess we got to say something. (laughs) So I've had good teachers to bring me through this dumb story that I I had been hanging on to. I love that you pointed that out, that you love the wallowing in the story and staying stuck in the story. I think this past five years, I've been doing a ton of reading a lot of Brene Brown books. I love her her books and she's amazing. I love that it's backed in data and information and i i love her, her stuff 
And I also realized, like, I can stay upset that this has been my life story. And it's not just losing my husband. There's been a lot of other things that were going on inside my home at the time that my husband was sick that was compounding the grief and the struggles and and the anxiety. But also, you know, I'm I'm like, why did I have to lose nine kids before I had my first child? Why did I have to have two late term miscarriages that, you know, should have been viable babies and, and weren't? And, you know, why did I have to have these things happen into my life? And, and there's been, a, of course, because it's life, a lot of those along the way. And I felt like I was somehow being victimized of life because nobody was telling me their stories. Like I wasn't aware that other people had such suffering, right? Because I was only aware of my own. So true. Yeah. yeah. And so it wasn't until I became an adult and I started to hear stories and I started to understand people had a lot of life stories and that we all have multiple life traumas that happen to us. And it is the condition of being human. Trauma is human it, it's it is to be alive you know what came to my mind when you said that i remember the day my mother died and i was at the hospital we had been at the hospital my brother my sister my sister-in-law and i for three or four days while she lingered and we would listen to her breathe and then 30 seconds would go by and she'd breathe again and it wound up being this slightly strangely wonderful thing the last We'd, we were eating together and laughing together and listening to her breathe for those last few days. Well, when she finally passed, I was driving back to her home where my father still lived. And I was standing at a gas station pumping gas. And this guy came by cranking music from his truck at the same you know, thing of gas pumps. And I thought, doesn't he know that life just ended for me? Yeah. Why is he playing that music so loud when life is over. Does he not get it? Mm-hmm. And now I realize when I'm anywhere, gas station, 7-Eleven, McDonald's, that guy, his life could be ending today. Yep. And I'm not clued in. Mm-hmm. I think that all the time now. That's such an awareness, that empathy. I remember one of the hardest moments for me after my husband died was the first time I went back to a PTA meeting. Which had nothing to do with Brent because Brent never once went to PTA with me. So it wasn't like I felt his absence because he should have been there. It's because I sat around a table in the school library with the principal and all my PTA mom friends acting as if it was just PTA as usual. And I remember thinking, I mean, I I think I left the meeting in tears because that felt so normal Mm -hmm. for the world. And yet it felt so violating because my world had stopped and yet the world does not stop. Exactly. So that perspective. And I think that's what Michelle always tells us at mm-hmm. the end of every episode. Just be nice. You have no idea who at the gas station might have just buried their mother. Yeah. Or going through a divorce or just got diagnosed with cancer or can't pay the bills or the IRS. Is, we don't know. There's a list. We can make a really long, ugly list yeah. of things people face on a daily basis. Yeah. And Michelle, you're right. We don't talk enough about how hard life is. I think we don't talk enough to our children. We don't talk enough to each other because we don't want to wallow because we've been told wallowing is bad. But there's kind of this safe place between Pollyanna and wallowing where that's the Brene Brown concept of being right. a little more honest and a little more real. And have we're, a little more empathy. The yeah. vulnerability, right? Where courage and fear intersect. Where Ooh, we I love that. Are, where we are vulnerable in that space where we can say, I'm hurting. Or when you said this to me, this hurt me. And I feel it here right here in my body. And this is how I'm feeling about it and breathing and moving through it. That's being present, 
right? That's being in the moment. And then we don't have to carry it with us. We can process that with the person we're with, or maybe we just process it with ourselves. Maybe we need to take a step back, stay in the moment, process. Where am I feeling this in my body? How is this making me feel? What feelings are coming up? What is being triggered in my past? How is this impacting me? And then breathing through that and stepping out and figuring out how do I move forward in love? How do I approach this for my best self? Yes. You know, and it's just being in the present. The intersection of courage and fear because we feel the fear. That's Brene Brown. Brown. I would love to claim that, but I I I never heard that. Guarantee it's one of her books. I think maybe it's Rising Strong or something. I can't remember which one. And courage is moving through the fear Mm -hmm. because we all feel fear. Mm-hmm. And courage is moving. Th- I love that. Yeah. Yeah. She says vulnerability is where courage and fear intersect. Mm-hmm. Isn't that powerful? Mm-hmm. And, and it's I not think, one or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I think we want it to be. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I feel like that's what has been my grieving process through this process with John is being able. And I chose to be public on my Facebook wall with my circle of friends, with my peers in Utah, which happen to be political people. And I've been very open and honest and vulnerable about that. It hasn't always been comfortable, Mm -hmm. right? It's Mm -hmm. not always comfortable. But I have also learned that in being vulnerable, I have been able to learn who I am authentically and be true to me. Beautiful. And I have let those walls of being tough, which you've talked about, that toughness. Mm -hmm. I, I think I was addicted to tough. Mm-hmm. It felt safe. And what I found out is it wasn't safe and it wasn't healthy for me. Okay. We could keep going for hours, but we're in the closing minutes. Amanda, what does resilience look like to you? Oh, resilience. Resilience is feeling hurt and loving anyway. Oh, wow. Yeah. Could we stop right yeah. there? That's so beautiful. <laughs> feeling Kellyanne, write that down. Like... Another merch opportunity. <laughs> I just want them all to be t-shirts. I know. Feeling hurt and loving anyway. Because I, I just feel like the reason I'm here is to love and to learn. I love learning. I read all the time. I just love it. My kids think I'm so weird because they, you just learn in school, mom. You're not in school anymore. Why do you keep reading? Because it's why I'm here. Right. And the other part is loving. I'm here to love. And if anything gets in the way of that, it shouldn't be there. So oh. resilience is... I moving through. Love that. That is where I am at right now in my life. Really embracing being open to love, loving again. Yes. And yeah, th- that's what we're here. All of our relationships, all of all our of relationships right. should move from that space of love. Yes, that's I it. I love it. I love it. Thank okay, you I for love having you. me. I love, I love, you, love both of you. Oh my gosh. Oh, Thank oh, you gosh. for having me. This is- <laughs> This has been such a fantastic episode to all of our listeners. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed it nearly as much as me and Michelle have as we just love Amanda Dixon and and seeing a little inside um, what's behind that beautiful cheery voice and the compassion and the empathy you have because of the pain you've experienced. How beautiful. If you like our podcast, we hope you will find us on your favorite podcast platform and give us a rating and a review. And as always, if you or someone you know has a story you're willing to share, we would love to hear that and share that with our listeners. You can find us through email at rrpodcast at ksl.com, on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient, or on Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. And remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their own lives. Have a great day. Talk to you soon. 
two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.